Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Any idiot can be fearless, but life can be much sweeter if you have guts. After all, it takes guts to ask the prettiest girl in the room to dance when your palms are sweating and you're turning beet red. It takes guts to plunge off the highest diving platform when you can feel the butterflies churning in your stomach. And it takes guts to fly off into the winds day after day facing the very real possibility of death. This week, we feature a one-time paper boy from North Carolina who won an appointment to the Air Force Academy, finished at the top of his class in flight school, and became the only Air Force pilot ace of the Vietnam War. General Steve Ritchie had something special, and the road he traveled to become one of the most decorated military pilots of his generation is full of universal lessons. Long before he wrote his name into the history books, Ritchie did his duty and went home to a country that was at war with itself. Then he did something remarkable. He volunteered to go back. You grew up in Reedsville, North Carolina where your father worked for American Tobacco. Tell me about that world and how it shaped you. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Small-time values, I guess. Um, A lot of sports. Uh, Hard work, teamwork, discipline, integrity. The basics, the fundamentals. Uh, My dad was in Patton's Third Army in Europe and um, was back when I was four or five years old and um, yeah, small-time job, small-time kid, uh, little league uh, baseball, uh, tag, uh, towel tag football from uh, you know the earliest ages. So, uh, um, and you I, broke your leg a couple of times. I broke broke uh, 
let's see, I think the left leg in the eighth grade, right leg in the ninth grade. And uh, the uh, doctor who set my leg in the ninth grade said, you can't play any more football. So I played uh, seven more years. You showed him. Uh, I said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> so I was, I suppose, more than anything else, a uh, very determined uh, kid. And uh, my folks uh, always said that you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. It's just up to you. Um, I think one of the great lessons Dad ever taught me, which is a tremendous lesson in life that a lot of people never learn, is when I was nine, I decided that if I could get a car when I was 16, I'd be, I'd be set for life. That's long-range planning at nine. It really is, but uh, I thought, boy, if I could just get a car. And so I, I told my dad that I wanted a car when I was 16, and he said, he said, that's fine, son. All you got to do is buy it. So I got my little rear end to work, and and did every job I could find, including morning and afternoon paper routes. Um, and during football season, I would contract out the afternoon routes. And what papers and, were those? Uh, the Reedsville paper, Reedsville Review and the Greensboro Daily News. Uh, so morning was the Greensboro paper and the afternoon was the Reedsville paper. Um, and at 16, I bought a 55 Ford Crown Victoria, um, uh, three years old with 15,000 miles on it, essentially a new car, uh, for $1,500, which is uh, a lot of money in 1958 for a 16-year-old. How in the world did you save that much money? Um, by working every job I could and saving every penny I could. I, I was, uh, you know, I had a, a, a goal. I was motivated, and uh, there, there's there's something really good about getting up every morning and doing something uh, that uh, that you're that you want to do. You're motivated to do. Not doing because I had to do it. It was because it was internal. And there was a big big prize at the end of the road. Uh, and then I still paid for most of the maintenance and insurance and, um, you know, tires and gasoline, which was, what, um, five or ten cents a gallon those days. What did that experience uh, teach you about the connection between hard work and achievement? Well, that um, just about anything is possible. Not everything. I mean, there, there's some of us that are, uh, there are a lot of things we just never will be able to do. But within, within the realm of reality, uh, one can do just about anything if, you, if you're really uh, that motivated and, um, and never give up. I think determination uh, is one of the great keys is to never, never, ever give up. And that's, you know, that was the way I was as a, as a kid. I just had this boundless determination um, to get things done. Uh, there was a, a great satisfaction to me uh, 
in achieving things, accomplishing a goal. Where do you think that comes from? A part of it is genetic. I think it's just in our DNA. Some people have it, some people don't. Um, but um, So part of it was the environment I grew up in, small town environment, uh, basically uh, um, good, solid American values, and it was in the uh, you know, late 40s, early 50s, which was after the war and things were booming and uh, uh, people were buying homes and cars and families and uh, I think it's uh, one of the greatest times in our country's uh, history. One of the best times to be alive. When did you first start thinking about flying and, and what was it that captured your imagination about it? Well, I was not one who uh, dreamed about being a pilot from a very young age, and that's something that I always wanted to do. Some people know what they want to do from uh, when they're four or five or ten years old, uh, and other people never figure it out. But as a little kid, I can remember being out, playing out in the backyard and seeing an airplane fly over. Uh, way up in the sky, which was unusual. There weren't many airplanes and, and certainly not flying over my little hometown. Greensboro was the nearest airport, you know, 40, 40 some miles away. But I, I can still to this day recall as a little kid, probably around five or six years old, uh, looking up at that airplane, watching it fly across the sky and thinking to myself, someday I will be in an airplane like that and fly all over the world. And I did. <laughs> well, you got accepted to the Air Force Academy in 1960, which was a really mm -hmm. big deal. Uh, well, what I was going to say, to finish up that other thought, yeah. is uh, Dad uh, took flying lessons on the GI Bill when he came home from World War II and soloed and took me on one flight with him and then after that, he decided that he didn't have enough money to keep flying. It was expensive. And, um, you know, he had a, uh, a decent job, but um, you know, a small-time job. And not a lot of extra money. He worked so, in the tobacco business. Uh, he was uh, office manager of the, the plant in Reedsville. American Tobacco Company. Uh, so the only thing that we had a big surplus of that we didn't need was cigarettes. They'd get a couple of packs of cigarettes a week, and none of us smoked except Dad smoked a pipe. So we had lots of cigarettes. And uh, I didn't smoke, you know, being interested in sports. Um, I needed all the help I could get, so I wasn't going to... Uh, you know, detract my chances of playing sports by smoking or drinking. So you, uh, you get to the Air Force Academy in 1960. Now, now tell me about that drive from North Carolina to Colorado. What was going through your mind? Well, there was a kid on the football team a year ahead of me that became one of my best friends named Wayne Atwater, and he became interested in the Air Force Academy, which was brand new. 
Um, you know, the first class graduated in 59, so it, it means they entered in 55. And <clears throat> I began to read about it in high school, and uh, Wayne lost interest, went, went to the University of North Carolina. And then he was tragically killed in a car wreck coming home for Christmas his freshman year. Uh, but um, I uh, got interested, and it was, you know, a brand new school out west in the Rockies, um, and I was eager to get out of this little town that I grew up in and go do something. And uh, so I thought, boy, going west and and maybe getting to fly and being with people from all over the country that are, uh, you know, the best from their particular uh, communities. I got real motivated and uh, was able to get a um, nomination from uh, one of the North Carolina senators, uh, a guy who became pretty famous in Watergate, uh, B. Everett Jordan. Uh, and so I got the nomination, but what happens in those days, I'm not sure if it's still the same, a member of the House or the Senate can nominate, I believe it was 11 people, and the Academy would select one from that group. And I had to have been an alternate because I found out so late. It was uh, about the beginning of May, and we entered the 27th, 27th, 28th of June of that year, 28th, I think. Um, so it wasn't until the first week in May that I found out that I had been selected and, and found out by telegram. Um, and I was so excited. So uh, other people were finding out in March and April. So I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make it. And, you know, the backup plan was to go to uh, Carolina where Dad had gone, or uh, I was kind of interested in Davidson, um, and maybe Wake Forest. I had talked to the Wake Forest football coach, although I wasn't, I wasn't uh, recruited by anybody, including the Air Force Academy. So, you know, I was a, an average high school football player, quarterback, and... Um, not very big, not very fast. I was faster until I broke both legs, and after that I wasn't as fast. Uh, but again, the reason I made the team uh, in high school and then more importantly at the academy was just sheer guts, determination. What was, <clears throat> a, what was academy life like during those days, and, and did you ever consider quitting? I did, every day my first year, <laughs> certainly the first summer. Uh, uh, it's funny, I, I wanted so badly to get away from Reedsville, my little hometown, and, and I got there and I was so miserable and so homesick, which was very surprising. Uh, I, I couldn't have ma ever imagined being homesick, but I was. I was so homesick, and the only thing that kept me from quitting was the number of people that had written letters for me and backed me and uh, were supporters <clears throat> and were happy and excited about the chance that I was going. 
I, I couldn't bear the thought of going home to these people and, and saying I quit. Couldn't do it. So that's what kept me from from resigning. I, I, I hated hated every single day of the first summer and almost every day of the first year. Now what you're talking about is something that really doesn't exist to the same extent in our society anymore, mm-hmm. the power of shame. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And uh, but it it was it was a huge motivator. Um, and it's too bad that that's pretty much gone. Um, because you know, in, incentive and motivation has uh, been such a, a big part of why our country is uh, the best in the world, or used to be. Right. So um, eventually you uh, graduate from, from flight school and, and you start flying the F-104 and then eventually you move into the F-4 Phantom, mm-hmm. which was the, that's what everybody wanted to fly at that point, if you were, if you were a uh, fighter pilot. What made the F-4 so powerful? Two great big J-79 engines, of which the F-104 had one, one J-79. Um, so it's very unusual to get a 104 out of pilot training. Um, when I, first of all, I got a call, uh, oh, spring of my senior year, from a major in personnel at the academy, and he said, are you planning to go to pilot training? Well, yes, sir. He said, well, you're not eligible. So I had had a knee operation in January that year after football season. And there was some regulation that if you've had a ma- if you've had major surgery within 12 months of pilot training, uh, you're not eligible. Um, so they had somehow figured this out in the in the personnel system and and decided that this reg applied to me. And you know, even as a cadet, I knew that most things had exceptions and there were waivers for for almost anything. And I said, well, uh, you know, who's the who's the waiver authority? How do I get a waiver? And he said, I don't know. He said, you're on your own. So I did the research and found out that uh, the waiver was with the chief surgeon at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. So I called, made an appointment, graduated, paid my own way to San Antonio, and went into this meeting with... uh, uh, full colonel who was was in charge there. Um, pretty confident that I could talk him into going to pilot training. I mean, why not? My goodness, there's nothing wrong with my knee. It had been fixed. Um, so I wasn't really that worried about the meeting uh, until um, I got into the meeting and it wasn't sounding good. This guy didn't sound like he was going to be favorable. And then I began to uh, have a little internal panic. And finally I thought, well, you know, i got to take my best shot here because this is not working out. Uh, he's not going to grant this waiver unless I really come up with something good. So I looked him in the eye and, and I said... Uh, uh, sir, I'll make you a deal. 
<laughs> he kind of chuckled and he said, he said, you'll make me a deal, lieutenant, this full colonel, second lieutenant. He said, what the hell is it? I'd piqued his curiosity, I think. <laughs> and so I said, sir, if you let me go to pilot training, I promise I will not let you down. Well, he thought about that. He said, okay. He said, you got a deal. Get out of here and go to pilot training. So, well, I was already motivated. I wanted to do well. And, but now I'm really motivated because uh, our word was our bond as a cadet at, in the Air Force at the Academy. And I truly believed in that. Uh, so I wanted to live up to my word that I'd made to this full colonel that gave me a waiver to go to pilot training. Now, you realize that a certain percentage of the population would have taken no for an answer. Why didn't you? I mean, why would they take a no? Why would they... You know, I'd gone to all that effort and I wanted to go so badly. Uh, I, uh, I just had to do everything I could to, to convince this guy. And, and, and you're right. Uh, I would say more people probably don't have that kind of drive and motivation. I don't know what the percentage would be. Uh, I don't know if it's 50-50 or 80-20 or 70-30 or, or what it is, but um, our country is as great as it is, the greatest in the world, because Americans have had that drive and that motivation and that incentive and that willingness to work hard and 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 our country is full of examples of of you know that kind of determination um, probably more so than anywhere else in the world and um, so anyway um, I was very highly motivated and worked as hard as anybody in my class and finished number one in academics, number one in flying, and number one overall. So I sent him the paperwork um, and a letter to thank him. And he wrote back and, and said, I made the right decision. Turning point in your life, no doubt about it. Yes. And uh, I, I really regret that I, somewhere along the way, uh, you know, I kept that letter in a file for a long time, but... It went missing at some point. <clears throat> it's one of those that I'd, I'd like to have to this day. But, um, you know, that was a certainly a turning point for me. And, it, uh, and then um, there were a few F-104s available at that particular class. You know, every class has a, a group of airplanes that uh, are allocated to the entire group of graduates from that year and turns out there were four F-104 assignments for all there were eight pilot training bases in those days so uh, you know the number one graduate gets their number one choice of what's available their first choice uh, whatever's available yeah they get their choice and so 
um, thank goodness there were um, four of the top graduates of the eight bases that didn't want the 104. And so the four of us who who wanted the 104 were able to select it right out of pilot train. And for those who don't know, uh, the 104 was uh, was a oh it was a hot looking machine. Mm. It was designed by Kelly Johnson. Right now, it uh, it was very cutting edge and uh, it killed a lot of people. Well, it that is a reputation that's been blown out of proportion a little bit. Uh, it had a downward ejection seat which meant at low altitude you had to roll upside down and eject downward, but then if you rolled upside down, it would be an upward ejection. So that was difficult at low altitude. And the reason for that is the rockets that powered the ejection seat um, were not powerful enough in the early days for the seat to clear the tail. It had a real high tail, of course. And so that's the reason they went to that downward ejection seat. Well, very soon afterwards, they came up with more powerful ejection seats and, you know, switched to an upward, upward ejection seat. That was the main problem with, with the 104. Um, other than that, the 104 safety record is as good as any single-seat fighter in the, you know, compared to the F-100, the F-86, uh, the F-106, F-102, F-105. Its its safety record was similar to all of those. And the F-4 was kind of the next generation. F-4 was next. Um, <clears throat> but you're right. The 104, sleek, um, it, it was the sports car of military flying and fighter flying. You look at it, it, it just it looked fast. It's, <laughs> yeah, so like a Corvette or a, um, you know, Lamborghini or just a just a fast machine. It just it just looked sleek sitting on the ground, particularly clean without any tanks or anything hanging on it. Um, so it was it was an airplane that a, a lot of people who flew fighters really wanted to fly. And um, so once again, I'm really really lucky and fortunate to be able to do that right out of pilot training as a second lieutenant, one of the few. Uh, to get to do it, and then <clears throat> flew it for two years. Um, in '65 to '67, and then 40 years later in '07, I got recertified by the FAA to fly the 104 again. First, we know I'm the only pilot in the world to get requalified 40 years after I had flown it on active duty. Uh, so that's a, you know, a very, very unusual, uh, fortunate, uh, lucky um, uh, thing that took place. Uh, but it was also the result of uh, a lot of hard work and a lot of determination and um, uh, some skill. Well, you know, most people have a hard time understanding uh, the skills you have to develop the talents that you have um, to be able to fly a high-performance jet like that. What do you have to have? What did you have that set you apart? Well, I think most of the skills can certainly be learned. Um, but one thing, one important thing is good eyesight. 
which I had, um, and the other is coordination. Uh, you know, the, the, the muscle memory, the motor skills of, uh, of an athlete uh, or a race car driver or a fighter pilot, uh, you know, quick reaction and making the right decision very quickly. Uh, you, you don't, if you make decisions quickly, it doesn't help if it's the wrong decision, unless it's quick enough to make the wrong one and then make the right one before it's too late, which happens, and you know, it's happened to all of us. Uh, so I think internally, innately, uh, I had some DNA that, um, that led to good coordination, good hand-eye coordination, as far as the airplane is concerned, uh, quick reaction, uh, quick thinking uh, ability, and the ability to analyze. You're always having to analyze the situation. Um, situational awareness, we call it. What's going on everywhere around you? Not just out front but to the side and to the rear, and every second or two, it's all changing. So all of that has to be fed into the, the brain, the mental computer, and then a new set of decisions have to be made as time flows. And when you add the combat arena to all of that, it just makes it 10 or 100 times more complex. Um, Let's say if you've got 20, 30 airplanes on the same frequency all trying to talk at the same time when they're shooting real bullets at you and, and things are just going crazy, uh, you've got to be able to filter out uh, with, your, with your hearing and your brain what is it that's going on on the radio that applies to me and my flight and my wing and my situation and blank out the rest of the conversation. So that takes some time, some training, some practice. And all of this, all along the way, takes a lot of practice, a lot of training. Some people adapt to the training, the practice, um, in developing those skills quicker than others. Some people have some natural ability that enables them to progress Quicker. There are other people's. There are other people who make it that didn't necessarily have the natural ability, but the willingness to work at it hard enough, which was the way it was for me in sports. Uh, I just wasn't a great athlete. I was good, but I wasn't great. And the reason I made the team at the Air Force Academy was sheer guts dogged determination. Because you wanted it. I wanted it, and again, um, I didn't want to have to walk away from it and say that I couldn't make it and I failed. So, you know, once again, a part of that motivation was, uh, I don't know if you call it the fear of failure, but uh, the stigma, maybe, of, of failure. Um, so it's similar in flying. Football prepared me for combat more than 
anything in, in my life. Tell me about your first day in country in South Vietnam, Da Nang Air Force Base, 1968, just a couple of months after Tet. Well, landed at Da Nang, opened the canopy. It was uh, the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, 1968, and it was already hot in the mid to high 90s in the same humidity as the temperature, and we there were open sores that ran along the runway. So the stench of that sore at near 100% humidity and near 100 degrees temperature hitting one in the face was so friggin' overwhelming. Uh, I thought to myself, this has got to be hell on earth. I have just landed in hell. <laughs> and I've got to be here for a year. Are you kidding me? A year at this dump? You know, this garbage dump? Uh, which in many ways is what it was. Uh, so the first day was a, a, a culture shock for sure. And it was one of those days where, you know... <clears throat> It was, it was just confusion. I didn't go through the proper end processing that everybody else went through that came over on the contract military flights uh, where they got their American money changed for Vietnamese. Uh, it wasn't Vietnamese money. It was military payment certificates, which was kind of a monopoly money that we had to use on base. And uh, so they didn't do all of that. And, and uh, so when I went to the club that night to eat, uh, I couldn't get anything to eat because they only took <clears throat> military payment certificates. Well, in order to get my American money changed into MPCs, I had to be a member of the club. Well, to be a member of the club, you had to pay your first month's dues. Well, this had to be a government operation, right? Exactly. So you had to pay your first month's dues in MPCs. They wouldn't take a check because I wasn't a member of the club. If I'd have been a member of the club, they'd have taken my check. But I wasn't a member of the club until I paid my first month's dues, but I didn't have any money to pay my first month's dues. You know, the MPCs. This is beginning so to sound like an Abbott Costello there's, routine. There's nowhere to get there from here. What the hell is this? I came to fight a friggin' war, and I can't even get anything to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, I said, I want to see a club officer. Here I am, a relatively new captain. And so Lieutenant Bill Mahoney shows up from Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, he notices my southern accent. He said, now, now, uh, now, Captain, you just calm down. He said, where are you from? And I told him I was from North Carolina. And he said, well, I tell you what. He said, uh, I'm going to buy your dinner tonight. Everything's going to be just fine. So... We became very close friends and, and are till this day. Uh, one of the things that you were involved in from an, uh, early on there was the, something called Fast Fact. How did that um, originate and what was it? Kind of hard to explain to the layperson because it's a special mission, but it started uh, in the 67 time frame with the Misties. Uh, who became a lot better known than we did, 
the Misties were founded by uh, Bud Day, who became a very, very famous uh, Air Force figure, uh, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, passed away just a few years ago. Uh, but Bud Day founded the Misties, and basically there was a need for a FAC, a forward air controller type mission over North Vietnam. In other words, <clears throat> looking for um, targets in the South, the forward air controllers normally worked with the Army and Marines and directing fighter airplanes with ordnance on ground targets. And they flew slow airplanes, uh, a Cessna type airplane, for example. And they had marking rockets, uh, white phosphorus markets. They would mark the target with the rocket and describe the where the enemy was, where the friendlies are, where the ground fire, the terrain, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, the idea was that we needed to do something similar to this over North Vietnam, um, fly at uh, low altitude, find targets such as bridges, uh, supplies. Uh, they they like to hide a lot of supplies under, uh, under uh, the jungle vegetation and uh, they would have truck parks where they would assemble a lot of trucks to tra travel. They traveled at night, so during the day they would truck their, park their trucks under camouflage and um, you know um, vegetation-covered areas. So uh, you know we were looking for truck parks and POL storage and uh, supply storage and. Um, you know, key bridges along the routes that they traveled, uh, that that type of thing. So we did a lot of what we call visual reconnaissance, and that's at a low altitude, meaning somewhere around, typically around four to five thousand feet, and around um, four hundred miles an hour. You know, going pretty fast, and um, and we had, you know, rules that were developed. Um, by the Misties for survival because it was a you know a fairly dangerous mission. So the Misties had become real good at this, and after a year or so, um, the, the uh, headquarters in Saigon decided they wanted to expand it into the F-4. Decided that Da Nang would be the first first base. I was new to Da Nang. They asked for volunteers. I volunteered. Got selected. So as part of the very first group of, we, we named ourselves Stormy. And we trained with the Misties. We got seven or eight flights in the back seat of the F-100. And then they came up and flew four or five rides in the back seat of the Phantom for our checkout program. And um, one of the guys I flew with was Dick Rutan, who flew the Voyager around the world. And then two others, uh, a guy named Lanny Lancaster and another named P.K. Robinson. Um, and in fact, we're actually going to the 50th Misty reunion in uh, um, Fort Walton Beach coming up here shortly. But it, it was uh, a mission that... Uh, was pretty productive. It was uh, one of the best missions during that time frame uh, because 
we, for the most part, during most of the years we were in Vietnam, not allowed to hit the major targets on a regular basis. And uh, they they pretty much left us alone as Misty's and Stormy's and, and let us do what we thought was best. And so we got to hit the targets we found. How frustrating, though, was it at that point to know what the very restrictive rules of engagement were? Well, it was obviously incredibly frustrating. Uh, um, all of us who flew and were there soon came to realize that the, the rules of engagement prevented us from uh, doing what we were there to do, which was basically defeat the, the communists and the Viet Cong. Um, the, the whole reason for being there was to support our allies in the South from being taken over by communist North Vietnam. Pretty simple. And yet, uh, the rules of engagement that we had to live with on a daily basis uh, prevented us from accomplishing that mission. And uh, we could have been in and out in Vietnam in a year, two years at the most, um, if we'd really gone after their major targets. Um, in other words, we weren't allowed to mine Haiphong Harbor, where the majority of the supplies are coming. You know, if they if they don't have the supplies, they can't wage the war. So, had we mined Haiphong Harbor and prevented the uh, the Russians and even countries friendly to us from supplying North Vietnam, you know, it would have made a major difference. We could have knocked, knocked out the North, East, and Northwest railroads coming into Hanoi, prevented that flow of supplies over rail. Uh, we could have hit the, the major uh, port facilities. We could have hit the uh, major um, manufacturing facilities, the oil and fuel storage facilities. Uh, all of the major bridges. So we could have done all of those things. We could have flooded the rice fields, uh, hit the, the dams, uh, the dikes, they called them. Uh, and for the most part, we weren't allowed to do any of that on a regular basis. We could do it on a selected basis if the president or secretary of defense said it was okay. How did it feel for you guys to go out risking your lives on a daily basis knowing that the leadership was refusing to let you fight with both hands. Well, pretty soon we were all came, we all, everybody there, I think, became pretty disgusted. And the name of the game was survival for 12 months and go home and try to help your friends survive. Uh, that doesn't mean that we still didn't try. We tried to, you know, when we had real targets. You know, we tried to hit them, tried to take them out, and, um, and especially on the rescues, rescue became very, very big. We went all out to do all that we could to rescue somebody. Uh, but on the day in and day out, it was extremely discouraging to have one hand tied behind your back, sometimes two hands, and be asked to fight and die and have your friends fight and die or end up being prisoners of war. I mean, just think about how absurd that is and how uh, 
demoralizing it is um, and what a, a negative motivational factor it is. So that was awful. And by the end of 1968, <clears throat> Paul Harvey came up with a slogan, drive it or park it in Vietnam. And those few words just boil down the entire thing. Drive it or park it in Vietnam. Either do it, either do what you are capable of doing. Just uh, those few things I outlined. Drive it or get the hell out. If you're not going to drive it, then park it. And we didn't do either one until we got kicked out with our tails between our legs. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. You completed your, your tour, um, but you were just a little bit short of a personal goal. You went home before you really wanted to. What happened? Well, on my first tour, um, I wanted to get a uh, hundred fast fact missions um, and two hundred total missions, uh, and I was at I was at ninety five fast fact missions and one hundred and ninety five total missions, um, and the wing commander had actually flown with me uh, in the the stormy mission. He wanted to see really what it was all about and I, I really admired a, a full colonel who certainly didn't have to go on that mission which is pretty dangerous uh, flying in the back seat and he of course was a pilot uh, named John Roberts and he flew with me in the back seat on one of the fast fact missions so he would really understand more about what we were doing um, and he knew it was uh, time for me to go home um, but I had about three more weeks, and I wanted, to, I wanted to fly those final three weeks and get just five more missions. But um, the wing maintenance officer was a colonel that I had known at Eglin in, in the 104 business, and uh, we knew each other very well. Um, and, you know, he's kind of like a father. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he's the one that talked uh, Carl Roberts into uh, saying, uh, your time is up, you're going home whether you like it or not. So, you know, they sent me home to, to, I think, not continue to take more risk just to get five more missions. Because what does it mean? Nothing. It was just something I wanted. And that decision, obviously, is going to figure very important in your life. Um, Seventy uh, in in sixty uh, nine, uh, you move back mm -hmm. to the states. You mm -hmm. become an instructor of the Top Gun School. Mm -hmm. But then in seventy two, you volunteered to go back. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, that's what my mother said. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why are you doing this? You don't have to do this. And I said, Well, Mom, um, you know, a lot of my buddies, classmates, friends from the Air Force Academy are back on their second tour, some of them on their third tour. And we're living uh, here in the U.S., a high standard of living in the world, enjoying life. Uh, I was in Las Vegas, a great city, a fun town, uh, having a great time. It's not fair. It, it's just not right. You know, this is what I went to school for. It's what I've trained for. This is my job. This is my duty. 
So it's not fair for, for me to stay here while a bunch of my, some of my best friends that are there on their second and third tour, so I have to go back. That simple. That simple, but that didn't really convince my mother. <laughs> well, not long after you got back, President Nixon approved a major change in the air war that was going to have a fundamental impact on your life. Tell me about that. Well, he did. Um, it was uh, 16 April. I got back in January. It was toward the end of January, and by you know, by the time I got all checked out and uh, was a, a flight lead and was beginning to fly the fast fact mission again, it had it had done so well and been so successful that it was spread to all of the other bases. So all of the bases in in uh, the major bases, F four bases, had now their own fast fact unit. Um, <clears throat> so I was already flying some fast fact missions, um, but there began to be rumbling about possibly going back to North Vietnam, and we had a couple of missions in early April, um, <clears throat> because the bombing north of the, I think it was the 19th parallel, which is about 60 miles north of the DMZ, uh, had been halted for four years. and uh, Going back to LBJ. LBJ is the one who did it in uh, 68, so uh, November 68, uh, which actually made extended my first tour about five months because I, uh, uh, the original first tour was 100 missions over North Vietnam, and uh, I had 95 missions over North Vietnam, so all I needed was five more missions over North Vietnam which I would have gotten in the, in the process of the uh, stormy. Hmm. Because there were circumstances where we could go into the north. If we were fired upon, we could fire back. So you could actually get into North Vietnam. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I wanted to complete those. Uh, which I didn't, which doesn't really matter, except it was my own personal goal. But um, then uh, we'd had, in the first two weeks of April, a couple of missions north of that uh, parallel, which had been off limits for four years. And then on 16 April, we knew there was a special mission coming and we briefed at about, I have to look back at my notes, it's in my notes, about, about 0200, about 2 a.m. Um, for a mission that was going to launch around sunrise. And it was downtown Hanoi, which we hadn't been for four years. And so i um, never forget when they, they pulled back the curtain and there's the big target uh, the big map of North Vietnam with the target was, uh, um, you know, I think it was gas and oil storage in Hanoi. Maybe maybe one of the major bridges. Uh, I don't know if the Than Hoa Bridge was on it that day or not. But there's a big cheer from the audience. Uh, everybody was very, very excited. Uh, I wrote in my diary that uh, people were... Uh, 100% behind the president and, and just so excited that finally, 
finally we're going to do what we should have been doing all these years. We're now we're going to go do it. Because after all, I mean, you're talking about <clears throat> fighting the war versus trying to win the war. Mm -hmm. So now it looked like to us that we we're going to go try to win this thing. And sure enough, that's, that's what we were doing, even though it really didn't come until Christmas of that year when we had the Christmas bombing, you know, after a couple of fits and starts with trying to have peace talks. And it really wasn't working until the Christmas bombing. And they, they realized that we're, we're serious this time. During a period of four months and 72, you recorded five enemy victories to make you the only Air Force ace of the war. Yeah, pilot ace. Pilot ace. Let's go through those missions. Well, that takes a long time. It depends <laughs> on the, the, the detail. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of detail, but the first one was 10 May. That is a long, complicated story that uh, would take, you know, 30 minutes to tell, but... To try to reduce it, uh, my classmate Bob Lodge, who's on his third tour, and one of the smartest guys in our class and, and had been working on a lot of special intelligence. He had a, um, a, uh, a clearance that was greater than top secret, special access clearance that none of us had, um, but he'd been able to get that and had been working on um, a special mission to Hanoi. Um, and he had, uh, at that time, uh, I guess he had a victory at that time. Um, and then on the 8th of May, um, Bob, I flew with Bob for the first time on the 8th of May, and I flew number four in a flight of four. And Bob had a victory that day. There was another big, Involved. I was flying uh, with number three. Was the um, flight was was the squadron DO, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, which shows you how uh, respected Bob was. Here's a major leading the flight with a Lieutenant Colonel, the number two guy in the squadron, flying on his wing as the deputy flight leader, and so I'm flying number four in the flight the last position in the flight. And um, three gets a shot at the second MiG, fired everything he had, and nothing worked. And cleared me in uh, to shoot this MiG that wasn't maneuvering very hard. But I was bingo fuel, which meant that's our go-home fuel. And we've been so strict about briefing uh, don't go below your bingo fuel. It's not worth it to run out of fuel and have to bail out over the north. So I went ahead and did what I was supposed to do and called that I was bingo, and so, you know, we departed. And I, for two days, kicked myself in the rear end thinking this is the last time I'll ever see a MiG and my only chance to ever get a shot at one. Well, two days later, we implement this mission that Bob Lodge had been planning for months and months. And the short story is that we engaged a flight of four MiG-21s uh, head-on, and one and two fired head-on as briefed. I was flying number three now, deputy flight lead, uh, 
the DO wasn't flying that day. So I'm flying as Bob's deputy. And two kills right away with the first two shots. Then we converted into the, the remaining two MiGs. I fired, downed one of them, which is now my first. Bob is behind the number four MiG. Uh, after we downed three out of the four now, and as good as he was, as long as he'd been flying, he's on his third tour, he became victim to something that he himself had warned against called target fixation. He became so fixed with a MiG out in front of him that he failed to hear all the rest of us tell him to break that there were two MiG-19s hiding behind. He was too deep into the zone. He was too deep into it. And so now as was typical of the North Vietnamese. They had a flight of four MiG-21s out front with another flight high and behind, uh, and they're willing to sacrifice all of these guys to get a shot at us, something we would never do. But that's the mindset of the North and the Communists. So sure enough, these two MiG-19s uh, uh, covered his airplane with 30-millimeter fire. You can see the bullets hitting the the wings and uh, he rolls upside down uh, burst into flame and goes into a cloud and we're screaming bail out bail out bail out Roger Locker was in the back seat Roger bailed out and later on he told the story that he told Lodge he said uh, um, I'm I'm bailing I'm getting out of here and, and Bob said you can bail out if you want to and Bob had always briefed that he was not going to bail out. He said, I'm not telling anybody else what to do. He said, I've got all of this special intelligence that I'm sure they know about, and I'm just not going to be captured. I'm not going to be tortured, captured, and tortured to death. Uh, he said, so I'm not bailing out. Well, I didn't believe him. I mean, I wouldn't have the courage not to bail out. I'm not going to ride the airplane into the ground. I just wouldn't do it. My plan was, if I didn't want to be captured, which I didn't, I've got a, a 38 pistol and a belt full of ammunition. So you start shooting when they're about to capture you and they're gonna kill you. So uh, that's kind of the plan that a lot of us had if we were determined not to be captured. We just shoot it out with them. Uh, but Bob rode the airplane in and uh, Locker just barely got out, and then that's a whole other story. Right, that, and that's a fascinating story. 23 year, days later. Let's uh, let's talk about the day you shot two MiGs in a space of, what, 79 seconds? Is that right? Uh, 89. 89, minute, excuse me. Minute 29. Minute 29. Yeah. Remarkable story. Tell us yeah. that story. Well, you can't just... Uh, to the extent that you yeah, can. You can't just tell that story because it is there's so many moving parts to that that story. It's almost where do you start. Um, it, you know, it's, a, it's at least a 15 or 20 minute story, but uh, a couple of valuable lessons. Uh, you know, in all of these things, we learn lessons of life. Um, and one of these was, it's a mission I didn't want to go on. Because uh, it was the last flight of four inbound, called egress flight meaning that as everyone else was egressing, 
we had a flight full of fuel and weapons coming inbound to protect anybody that was in trouble. You know, very good thing to have. I preferred to be on ingress flight, which is a first flight of four inbound, because that's where most of the activity was. You know, and my thought was, if, I, if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to be going through all of this that we go through, I wanted to be where the action was, as most all of us did. So I didn't want to fly egress flight. Even though it was an important mission, it just never got much of the action. So I was uh, unhappy to discover that morning that I was not on the ingress flight where I usually was and um, or had, had been ever since, uh, you know, the last couple of months, since I'd been leading uh, the flights, uh, I was normally, my normal position was leading the ingress flight. In addition to that, I was in an E model instead of a D model, and uh, most people think, well, you'd rather be in an E because it has an internal gun, except we had some special equipment, um, codenamed Combat Tree, that would identify the position, bearing and distance, it would give bearing and distance of enemy airplanes out to about 100 miles uh, which in the cockpit, which was extremely important information to have. You know, I'd rather know where they are than to have a gun in the airplane. So, I'm very upset that I'm not in a combat tree bird and I'm not leading the ingress flight. Um, so the lesson is, after we hear the end of the story here, the rest of the story, is that you, you got to be careful what you ask for, you might get it. And it might not be what you really wanted. Uh, so to try to shorten this, um, Turns out I do lead the egress flight. It looks like we're not even going to fly because the weather was uh, marginal. But it turns out about takeoff time, the weather begins to clear and off we go. And sure enough, uh, after I got airborne and topped off and I'm headed inbound, there's a, um, a, an F-4 that's been hit by a MiG and he has broken ranks with his flight, which is a cardinal rule that one never does. Uh, so he broke the cardinal rule by leaving his flight. He's headed outbound. He panicked. He's headed home, headed south, announcing on guard the emergency frequency, his position, heading, and altitude telling everybody in the world exactly where he was and the fact that he's bleeding fuel and hydraulics. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Oh my goodness. I said, we got to head that way, there are going to be MiGs there. And sure enough, we got there, we engaged a flight of two MiG-21s and uh, lucky enough to down both of them. Uh, and there's a whole nother part of that story which was totally unlikely. It was virtually impossible that the missiles would have worked the way they did under the conditions that I fired them. Uh, uh, the quick explanation is that I fired 
either at or outside of the parameters of the missile in all of the axes and with a missile that had a 0.11 probability of kill, in other words 11 out of 100, and I had three perfect missiles under maximum conditions or beyond maximum conditions and down those two MiG-21s. So the chances of that happening are way, way less than one-tenth of one percent. So here's a mission I didn't even want to go on. Would have elected, if it had been up to me, not to go on that mission. And then um, had three perfect missiles under uh, the worst conditions to fire the missile. Not the worst, but very adverse. And had the missiles, a .11 PK missile, had three the only three I fired three. I didn't fire the fourth one because I figured we're we're too much uh, out of parameters for it to work, and why waste another missile? I had a gun. Maybe I could get a gunshot. Um, so fired three missiles. Three of them were perfect. The first missile went through the center of the fuselage in the MiG, as it's in a very hard turn, and the second missile went through the fireball. And then on the next shot, we're even at a higher angle off. So I only fired one missile, figuring there's no way. Maybe, sometimes you fire at him, you get him to turn. So I thought, maybe I fired this guy and get him to reverse his turn. Then I can go to guns and get a gunshot. That missile hits dead center in the fuselage. So, What was a better machine, the F-4 or the MiG? Well, the, the MiG was better at a few things. It turned tighter, and it was hard to see. Those are two very critical things in an air-to-air dogfight. The first person who loses sight is probably going to lose the fight. And uh, so, being hard to see, number one, and being able to turn tighter, number two, are two of the most important things. Now, we're bigger, we're more powerful, we go a little faster, particularly at low altitude and high speed where the air is thick. They had a control problem at, at what we call high Q, fast and thick air. Um, we could outzoom them. We had much better avionics. And weapons, well, you know, they had a cannon, uh, which was you know, reasonably good, and they had heat seeking missiles, which were uh, average. So, and we were, uh, by and large, better trained. You re returned home um, as one of the most decorated heroes of the war, but you returned home to a country that was very divided on the war. Mm -hmm. How did that make you feel? Well, I was I was proud, but 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 disappointed uh, in uh, everything that was going on back home. Uh, people at home did didn't understand. The, what we were doing. They didn't understand that we were trying to do what we were supposed to do, and that's defend a, uh, an ally. Um, they didn't really understand that we were not allowed to do our job by Washington. Um, and so, uh, in one way, 
I agreed with the protest. If we're not going to do it right, let's get out. What we all wanted to do is to do it right and then get out. Uh, and we felt like it, those of us who were there felt like it could have been done in a relatively short period of time. But we had all of these restrictions and rules of engagement that prevented us from doing the job. So the name of the game for us became survival. You know, survive your tour and go home. Um, and it was even, that was more of a goal, and that was more intense for the poor guys that were on the ground, the Army and the Marines. I mean, they were up front. We didn't have to face the bloody, gory uh, part of this thing day in and day out the way they did. I mean, they, they, they lived it right in their face. And they saw and experienced uh, uh, terrible, uh, terrible, tragic things on both sides uh, that nobody should endure. Uh, so those guys, and, and normally they're younger. Uh, we're all, almost all college graduates. We're more mature. We have more education. Uh, these kids are... You know, right off the farm, right, right off of the the corner basketball lot. They're, um, you know, not a lot of them are not don't have any um, uh, education. Some of them are, aren't even high school graduates, and uh, you know, I don't blame them for for being uh, becoming. There were many who came over who were motivated to do the job, but once they got there and, and became a part of a system where we had so many restrictions placed on ourselves and so many of their friends were getting brutally wounded and killed, I don't blame them for turning against it. So, How did it make you feel for some kid who hadn't been there to call you a baby killer? Not good. I mean... You know, they don't know what they're talking about. It's not true. And uh, so um, I, I just almost had to feel sorry for them because they're so ignorant. Uh, I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't like the protest. Um, but I also didn't like what our government was doing to us. So, so the, the protest in many ways was valid. It's just that the, the people were so uh, misinformed in the way they went about their protest. And it's, it, it wasn't worth burning down buildings, uh, banks and college buildings. And uh, it, it wasn't worth all of the violent protests that we had. I mean, how did that help? What did that do to change anything? So, you know, similar to some of the things that are happening today. Uh, but sure, I mean, it was it was disappointing to be, you know, I was in San Francisco with my uniform on, and you know, you have somebody spit on you. And uh, when I was running for Congress in my little town in uh, North Carolina, it was actually in Greensboro. Somebody spit on my dad. Uh, and this was in 74, you know, after the war, when I was running for office. So, it, you know, it's just, 
uh, a lot of it is ignorance and, and a lot of it is uh, protest, protesting something that we shouldn't have been involved in for such a long period of time. We should have been involved for a short period of time and done the job and done it right and then left. Not long after you got back, you wound up in the middle of a uh, in the Playboy Club in Chicago, <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of a George McGovern rally. Mm. How did that happen? I really don't know. The uh, Playboy put in a request to the Secretary of the Air Force uh, Information Office to do a an article on me, and they approved it. And I was so surprised; I couldn't believe that they'd done this. So. Um, I have an appointment to go into Chicago, and the gal that's going to do the interview, named Carol Troy, picks me up at the airport. And I, I was in uniform, uh, Captain Steve Ritchie. So we were headed downtown, and she said, uh, well, we're going to the Playboy Club. I said, good. Yeah, that sounds nice. And she said, it's a fundraiser for McGovern. Um, fundraiser for McGovern. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess I, I need to change clothes before we go. And then I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to go in uniform. Um, which, you know, is, is probably not really allowed, uh, technically, to go in uniform to a political fundraiser. But uh, I wasn't on their side. I don't, so. I don't think there's any doubt about <laughs> yeah, what side you're on. Right. Uh, so I, I thought I would go and see how this this went. Well, uh, you know, they didn't know what to do with me, um, and so they were very, very standoffish. Uh, very few people wanted to talk to me, um, and the guy running the thing introduced me as one of our boys, whose home. From Vietnam, he he came up. And he said, uh, he said, you don't want to say anything, do you? And I said, I'll I'll say it. I'll make a few remarks. So he kind of okay. So he quietens the crowd, introduces one of our boys who's home from Vietnam, and I essentially said, you you and I probably don't agree on what's going on in Vietnam. He said, but you know, my colleagues and I. Are, are willing to die if we have to, to defend your right to believe and say what you believe and, and our right to believe as we do. And so, you know, what could they do? Very, very, very minimum applause, and then that was it. So John Voigt was there, and uh, he struck up a conversation, and we, uh, Bette Midler, sang some anti-war songs, which everybody cheered and applauded. And I did, except I was the only one not cheering. And so, uh, I don't remember if I was the one or John was the one who said, you know, why don't, we, why don't we step out in the hall, which we did, and I don't know, we spent 10 or 15 minutes talking, and, uh, and he was giving kind of his views of why he uh, was against the war and I was sort of giving my views on why I support was supporting uh, what we did and and we both agreed that uh, the politicians were making mistakes and that the way it was being handled was wrong um, and he said uh, 
finally I said, listen, John, I said, uh, I said, it doesn't look like I'm going to convince you, and you're not really going to convince me. I said, why don't we just, uh, why don't we just be friends? He said, it's a good idea. Let's, let's, let me buy you a drink. So. And the irony, of course, that uh, John yeah. Boyd's uh, political view. Turns, turned around. <laughs> he, uh, he converted. <laughs> Came over to our side. A couple of years later, you, as you mentioned, you ran for Congress and you got beat. You ran as a Republican mm -hmm. in North Carolina, which was still very much Democratic territory in those days, and you lost. What did that failure teach you? Um, well, how ridiculous it is to run for Congress when you've got 18% uh, Republican registration uh, in a heavily Democrat district against a Democrat incumbent um, during Vietnam right after Watergate. That, that's not a very smart thing to do. So, uh, gosh, I guess um, it certainly was uh, a huge uphill battle and there was virtually no chance to win. Um, and, and so unless I was trying to lay a foundation to run again in the future, um, it, uh, there just, there wasn't any real reason to do it. Um, the Republicans recruited me since, uh, they couldn't get anybody else to run. And all of a sudden I appear on the scene with a, with a whole lot of publicity and now I'm, a well-known name, and they figure, um, I think maybe they were thinking that long-term, if I stayed in the game, there, there might be a chance to lay a groundwork to get elected some, at some point in the future. But I was so disgusted with the whole thing that uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't interested after that. In fact, um, the Greensboro Daily News asked me right before the the election, uh, no, the next day after the election, I want to know what I thought about it. I said I was disappointed in the intelligence of the voters, which they printed. And they said, you don't plan to run here again, do you? I said, hell no, I don't. <laughs> Can you imagine them branding that, if I ever ran again, branding up that uh, statement? Richie disappointed in the intelligence. They printed it in the newspaper the next day, which didn't make me very popular. I wasn't very popular anyway. I got 38% uh, of the vote. So technically, I got about uh, you know, 15, 20% of the Democrat vote. Well, about... Uh, you know, the disaffected. About six months later, um, you watched, like a lot of us did, the... Uh, North Vietnamese run into uh, Saigon. Mm. Those images that forever seared uh, in the memories of anybody of a certain generation of the helicopters mm. taking off. Yeah. How did that make you feel? Terrible. I mean, it's awful. Um, I felt so sorry for those people that had been on our side and had helped us and they got left behind and uh, ended up being in prison for X number of years, what they call re-education camps, were, which were prisons. And a lot of them were, were tortured and treated very badly. And um, 
you know, we pretty much left them behind. There should have been a way that we could have um, gotten out and taken everybody that had helped us, or at least almost everybody that had helped us. We sh should have been able to do that. We should have seen this collapse coming sooner and started more of an orderly process of removing people. But we waited too late. We just couldn't, we couldn't admit to ourselves that it was actually going to happen. And uh, um, <clears throat> so on the other side of the story, you know, years later when I meet Mariana, as badly as we handled that whole thing, to people behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, it was a good thing because it gave them hope that somebody was fighting the communists. Communist was their worst enemy, the communist. Uh, it was evil. They lived under communist oppression. And the fact that the Americans, halfway around the world, were fighting the communists, number one, it uh, distracted the Soviets enough that it made life just a little bit easier for them. And number two, it gave them hope that someday, maybe the Americans would come to help rescue them. So that was something I'd never thought of until I met Mariano. And uh, so from that standpoint, you know, that was a, a, a side effect of Vietnam that was a good thing. And uh, I doubt that there were any of us over there at that time that ever thought about halfway around the world. There are people who are uh, given some hope that somebody's fighting the communists, even as badly as we did it. What has Mariana taught you about the hunger for freedom? Well, it, it, I don't know it's taught me anything, but it's, 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 it's emphasized in a very personal way uh, more of what it's like to live without freedom, dreaming of the USA, knowing that people in America are free, and hoping, hoping and dreaming and uh, planning and praying that somehow, some way, someday, she could uh, get out of that system and out of that country and become an American. She wanted to be an American more than 99% of Americans. And she loves our country more than almost any American I've ever met. Uh, if it's possible to love the country more than I do, she does. And in a way that I can't understand, because I haven't lived under it. And I think people who haven't lived under it, as much as they can um, psychologically and intellectually and mentally put themselves there, there's no way if you haven't been there. It's just like I will never understand just how bad it was for the Army and the Marines who suffered uh, the, the um, in incredibly difficult emotion of being right up close to all of the bad things that happened in, in Vietnam that that I didn't see up close except on rare occasions and so you know um, I feel like that I love America and, and love freedom as much as anybody that I know except uh, she loves it more and, and, and appreciates it more and understands it more. And it's the same with all of people who've actually 
lived under oppression. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.